There was once a young man from a very impoverished background, grew up with almost nothing, and as many young men do in that stage of life, coming from that background, they desired a better life for themselves and their family than that existence that they had when they were a child. So this young man saved as much money as he could and also went into um, a lot of debt and opened up a grocery store in a town called New Salem in Illinois. But his partner ended up having an alcohol problem and they ended up having to um, not make any much money in that business. In fact, he was in so much debt that he referred to his debt, his own personal debt, as the national debt. Not sure he would refer to it that way today, but he did then. So he gave up on being a successful businessman, took him a decade to pay off his debts. He went to law school and then into politics. And then in 1860, Abraham Lincoln became president of the United States. And as president of the United States, if you've read much of Lincoln and about him, you know he was an avid Shakespeare, Shakespeare fan. And one of his favorite lines comes from Hamlet. There is a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hewn them as we may. There is a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hewn them as we may. So God is shaping our ends, even though we get in the way sometimes, he will not be deterred. And if you've read his second inauguration address, you know that he spends much of that address explaining and giving examples of why God's sovereign hand in the Civil War was accomplishing things that lots of people didn't even see. Here is a man who believed in the sovereignty of God and lived accordingly. He did not give lip service to the sovereignty of God. He gave life service to the sovereignty of God. I wonder where you stand on that today. I think everybody in this room, we would agree that God is sovereign. Now, we may have experienced that sovereignty in different ways. We may have studied it more or less, been exposed to it more or less. But we can't read very far in Scripture. Not many pages of Scripture exist without showing us God's sovereign hand in advancing His will and carrying out His counsels and His desire. Psalm 104 that we just heard was full of that. So if we know that, the question before us today is do we give lip service to his sovereignty or life service to his sovereignty? And you may say, well, how do I know that? Well, if he's sovereign over all things, how do you respond to things when you don't like them? How do you respond to things when you don't understand them? How do you respond to things when you would have done something different in your own wisdom? How do you respond to things? Are you a mad, angry self-controlled, anxiety-filled person when you're walking in the midst of God's sovereign will? Or are you experiencing his grace-filled sovereign hand even when it's a hard providence and remembering he's sovereign. My job is to love him and follow him and he loves me. He knows me. He created me. He has the best for me. Do we give lip service or life service to God's sovereignty? Turn to Isaiah chapter 44 and stand, if you will. I know you just stood for a while. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 21. 
I'm going to read just to the end of chapter 44 in this section together. As I go through it, I'll need to reference the text a lot. So rather than reading it twice this morning, once together and then once as I go through it, let's just set the stage with this first phrase of remember these things. I mean, I'm sorry, the first phrase of thus saith Yahweh, thus says Yahweh in verse 24 of chapter 44. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am Yahweh, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars, who makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, he or who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and I shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Verse 1 of 45, thus says Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. Well, if you remember, just briefly, last week we were in this picturesque view of idolatry where Isaiah is speaking and he's describing the ironies and the folly of idolatry. And he uses the example of a, of a man who would go into the forest, a forest full of trees that God created and God nurtured and sent water to grow. And he cuts down a tree and takes it home and use, uses part of it to build a fire and warm himself. And that same fire he cooks bread upon, he cooks meat upon, and he's satisfied with all that. And then he takes the rest of that tree, builds an idol, and he bows down to it and says, deliver me, you are my God. And how ludicrous that whole process is, that, that men should not be able to see clearly the creating God and that they would not be able to look at their hand that holds the idol and say, this is a lie in my hand. Now that's a, a recurring theme in Isaiah, isn't it? God dealing with the idols of the world and those who trust in them and calling them toward him to defend themselves and show themselves to be like him or not. And every time he's done it so far, we have crickets chirping. There is no movement from the idols or those who worship them. And so that led us to the praise that God says to Israel, you need to remember these things. Remember what I've just told you and don't be those idol makers. Don't be those idol users because you were my servant and I formed you. You were my servant, he says a second time. And listen, oh Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Then the heavens and the earth and the trees, the same trees that were cut down to make idols from, they're called to rejoice at the redemption of men, as we hear Romans 8, right in Isaiah chapter 44. 
Now, if you look at your text where we just started reading in verse 24, you see the phrase, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh. Anytime you see all of those, uh, all caps for Lord, it's referring to Yahweh, that covenant name of God. Now, that occurs five times between here and the end of chapter 45. There are also some other phrases that that are recorded. I want to just draw your attention because these phrases keep us focused on God and not Cyrus. Okay, our, even though our outline is going to talk about Cyrus, even though that the text talks about Cyrus, what the text mostly talks about is what God is going to do for his people, for his glory, by using Cyrus. So we see in verse 24, thus says Yahweh. But look at the, look at the third phrase of verse 24. I am Yahweh. Now if you look down to verse, 40, uh, verse 5, and six of chapter 45, you see a second, thus says Yahweh, in verse one, and then in verse five, you see, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. In verse six, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Then turn over, if you have to turn your page, to verse 11, we see our third, thus says Yahweh, In verse 14, we see our fourth, thus says Yahweh. In verse 18, we see our fifth, thus says Yahweh. But in the middle of it, we see that little phrase at the end of verse 14, there is no other, surely God is in you, and there is no other. Look at the end of verse 18, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Look at verse 21, right in the middle, I, Yahweh, and there is no other God beside me. None beside me. Verse 22, I am God and there is no other. Do you think God wants us to know that he is the only God and there is no other? Can we agree that that seems to be the theme of this passage? There is one God. He is the creator of the universe. There is no one else. And so we are already expected to sit back and listen to what this God has to say and to watch what he has to do, what he is doing, and to praise him for it because he is God. He's not an idol. He, he, he speaks to his people. He makes his will known. He is God and there is no other. So as we go through this week and next week through the end of 44 and through chapter 45, we'll use these repeated phrases of thus says Yahweh to guide us. I think that marks out this text. But let's keep in mind where we are in the book of Isaiah. Remember when we moved from chapter 39 to chapter 40, we moved to a different sounding Isaiah, didn't we? we? We moved to an Isaiah that even has a different audience, still writing at the end of the, at the beginning of the seventh century, maybe the end of the eighth century, but probably into the seventh century. Remember, 1-1 tells us that Isaiah lived and wrote under four different kings, the last one Hezekiah, and Hezekiah reigned all the way through 686. So he's into his reign, into the beginning of the 7th century. And yet beginning in chapter 40, he has his eyes set on the Babylonian captivity, which won't happen until 586, 150 years later. So we have a dual audience. Isaiah's writing and preaching to those people that he's around in in the beginning of the 7th century. But his eyes are turned toward the people who God says will be in captivity in Babylon beginning in 586, released in 538. So our eyes are to there. And then when we look at this section of scripture between 40 and, and verse 48, we are seeing the focus being on Israel as God's servant. But 
Cyrus is in our view all the way here from, verse, from chapter 44, verse 24, all the way into the end of verse 48. Because what God intends to do through Cyrus is give the example of how he intends to save the world. That's what he intends to do. And then beginning in, verse, in chapter 49, that's where we start seeing the servant songs again, the, third, uh, the second, third, and fourth servant song. So this is where we are in Isaiah. And yes, I could have preached a whole sermon on that, but did you notice I didn't? I didn't preach a whole sermon. So the first, thus saith Yahweh, thus saith the Lord. This week and next week, we'll look at all five of them. So we will hear five oracles from Yahweh concerning Cyrus and Yahweh's right to raise him up. Five oracles from Yahweh concerning Cyrus and Yahweh's right to raise him up. Yahweh says, first of all, in verse 24 through 28 of chapter 44, Cyrus is my shepherd who will fulfill my purpose. So look right there in verse 24. Thus says Yahweh, your redeemer, who formed you from the womb. So the first thing he's doing is reminding him of what he's already said in verse 2 of of chapter 44. Thus says Yahweh who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. This is an emphasis in this section that God formed both Judah, the southern kingdom, Israel, God's people, and them individually. He's the one who formed them. He has everything to do with how they came about and sustaining them. We just sang that in Psalm 139, the first 16 verses or so. This is what verse 24 reminds us of. I formed you from the womb. I am your redeemer. So automatically, we are, our hearts are turned toward the Lord. And if we are in Christ, what are we thanking him for? That he is our redeemer. And he formed us in the womb. He was there at creation. And he also is the reason for our recreation spiritually. So we hear through new coveted eyes and ears this promise of Christ and him being our redeemer. But Yahweh continues, I am Yahweh who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Do you see the the uniqueness here? So even though he says, I am the Lord, and he doesn't say there is no other like he does the other five times, He's still demonstrating that there is no other. Why? Because he is the only one who stretched out the heavens. Uh, uh, an idea that we've seen over several times. We saw it last week in the fifth verse of this, of, of this chapter and in chapter 42, verse 5. And he spread out the earth and he's almost like saying, you just picture your child coming saying something. I did it all by myself. But God's saying, I did it by myself. There was no one else. No one else could have, no one else did, and he's already challenged the the idols to come forward and show that they have done things like Yahweh and they have not been able to do it. But he goes on, listen, I am Yahweh, but he says who, 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 who. The rest of this list is what he has done. And it overwhelms us here. Verse 25, I frustrate the signs of liars and make fools of diviners. So the diviners, the one who claim hidden knowledge, whether it is looking at the stars or cutting open some animal and looking at their entrails, these are the people who claim this hidden knowledge. And and God says he makes fools of them. He he takes the signs of the liars, the liars who would, and the word means liars, perpetual, habitual liars, who will always lie about something and give you a sign to show what you should be looking for. And he says, I frustrate those. He knows the hearts of men. He knows everything that's going on. 
He is about doing one thing while men who are in opposition to him are about doing another. We think of what, we've, what we learned in 1 Corinthians 1 uh, several months ago from, from several of our men preaching that, that God is the one who, who just, it's his knowledge that shames the world. His wisdom shames the world's wisdom. His foolishness, if there was such a thing, shames the world's greatest wisdom. And this is a demonstration of that. He also says, he turns back wise men and makes their knowledge foolish. That passage in 1 Corinthians 1, again, has not God made the foolishness of the, the foolish, the wisdom of the world? He's made foolish the wisdom of the world. That's his intention. No matter what man does in opposition to him, he is the God who stretches out the heavens and they can stand against him, not at all. But look what he does do in verse 26. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. So his servant could be Isaiah, could be anyone who serves as God's servant. Israel's been called God's servant over and over, and this is God saying, I confirm their word. Why does he confirm the word of his servant, and why does he fulfill the counsel of his messengers? Because the word his servants speak and the counsel his messengers bring are his. That's why they are his servants and his messengers. They're not bringing their own lies. They're not bringing their own wisdom. They're speaking for God. And when they speak for God, God is powerful and sovereign and he confirms it. He carries it out. He fills it, fulfills it all. And these servants and messengers, look in the middle of verse 26, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Look down at verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now I want you to think, if you're in Isaiah's day at the beginning of the 7th century, what are you thinking about those words? You're looking around and you're seeing Jerusalem stands. You're looking around, you're seeing the temple stands. You're saying, wait a minute, this is a little puzzling. I'm I'm a little confused by this. The promise is that they'll be raised up and they're right in front of my eyes. They don't need to be raised up. But think about what you think if you were in Babylon. You wouldn't be confused at all, would you? You've been separated from your homeland. The temple is destroyed. And now you hear God promise that he's going to raise up the cities, raise up Jerusalem, and raise up the temple again and have its foundation sure. This is great news for God's people in captivity in Babylon 150 years after Isaiah writes. But it is God asserting his sovereign hand that he will be the one who does this. Look at verse 27. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Now that's just a wonderful phrase placed right here. It's another statement of God in his sovereign hand over creation. But it's also, we've already met Cyrus here in verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purposes. Now let's meet Cyrus. We've had, we've alluded, Isaiah has alluded to Cyrus for us already. He's just used he, but talking about God sending an invader into Babylon to free his people. We've already seen that um, earlier in this, in the last chapter. And so now Cyrus is named. And the reason I'm coming back to verse 27 about um, says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers is because of the Cyrus story. You see, Cyrus isn't even born when Isaiah is writing. 
This is why some people will look at this section of Isaiah and say, this, this is the second section of Isaiah that was actually written by somebody else after the, um, the nation was taken into captivity and then set free. Because they don't believe what God says about himself over and over and over in Isaiah, that he predicts the future and causes things to happen, and then we'll look back and tell you why it happened, and he carries out all these purposes. So we know that he's looking into the future. So Cyrus, not yet born, but if you're in Babylon, especially at the end of your captivity, you know about Cyrus. Because Cyrus is already on the move. Cyrus is a man who was born in 590, 589 BC. In 559, he took the Persian throne. In 550, he overtakes the Medes. This is where we get the Medo-Persian Empire that Cyrus oversees. So all of this is while they're, they're in captivity. So they're in captivity and they're hearing about this. They're hearing about the, the leaders that are rising up. And now all of a sudden, when they see the words of Isaiah, they're remembering, wait a minute, God already talked about this. God already gave us encouragement about this. In 539, one of his generals, this is where verse 27 is very interesting to me in this placement. One of his generals leads the army, the Medo-Persian army, on the outside of the walled city of Babylon, and they redirect the Euphrates River into a different place so that the volume of it drops, and they walk in under the city in about thigh-high water. They walk on in under the city. The whole army does, and there's no resistance. They just take over the city. It's peaceful almost because they take over the city because they don't see him coming. And it is God who is the one who takes care of rising and lowering the waters. I don't think that's an accidental placement of God's sovereign hand over creation that he will dry up your rivers. So this Cyrus is one that is on the move and in 539 he comes into Babylon. In 538 BC he issues a decree that says God's people can return to their homeland. Now, we'll get to that decree in a minute, but I want you to just first think of what the people um, are saying, even in Isaiah's day, but especially in the, Babylon, in the Babylonian captivity time. Who would they be expecting to be their redeemer if it's a human being that God sends? Someone from the line of David. Someone who is rightfully the king of Israel to come in and kick the tails of the enemy that's been keeping them under wraps and lead them back into the homeland. But if they're in Babylon, they're seeing Cyrus? The Persian? The pagan? He's the one that is supposed to lead us back? You can see some, at least confusion, if not anger. Plus, they said that God says that Cyrus is his shepherd. Now, that's a term used for David and Solomon. If a man is going to be God's shepherd, it's going to be one of God's leaders from the line of David. That's what they're expecting and God's saying, I'm doing something else. You see why he's already given his resume at the beginning, and he'll give his resume again of why he is worthy to do whatever he pleases, because there might be objections to this. Well, he's carrying out these purposes, fulfilling the purposes, and these purposes include Jerusalem being rebuilt and the foundations of the temple be laid so that the temple can be rebuilt as well. So Cyrus is my shepherd who will fulfill my purpose. I intend to do this, says God, and Cyrus will carry out my good pleasure, what I want to have done. So here's the way we need to understand this. Cyrus will do as I please. We can sum it all up like that. I'm raising him up and he will do what I please him to do. 
what my pleasure is. Well, the second, thus says Yahweh's statement. We've seen that Cyrus is my shepherd who will fulfill my purpose. But now, in beginning in verse, chapter 45, we see Cyrus is my anointed whom I will empower, so don't fight with me. Now, that's going to be the beginning and the end of these 10 verses. And in the middle, God is going to give the reasons why no one should fight against him. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now, if they weren't puzzled or angry or frustrated or confused about, about shepherd, they're very much confused about anointed. Anointed was a word that was used for God's kings, his prophets, and his priests, and anyone who God raised up for duty. But anointed is also the word that we get Messiah from, where we get in the Greek language, Christ. So when we see the, the words about the anointed one, the, our hope is that we're seeing Christ. But we're seeing Cyrus, a Medo-Persian king who is not a believer, as we'll see later. So there might be opposition already broiling here. There might be, are you kidding me? Now he's your anointed? And this is Yahweh telling us this? And he's on the move. He's coming to Babylon. We're, we're, now, we're part of Babylon right now. Are we going to fall at his hands? And God is trying to convince them, he's, I'm working for your benefit here. Thus says Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus. In verse 1, he speaks directly are he speaking in general terms first? Who's right, he's talking about himself. Thus says Yahweh, whose right hand I have grasped, this is Cyrus, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Now we know what this symbolism of the right hand means. This is God, when God speaks about his right hand, he's speaking about his power, right? He's speaking about his power. Now what God says is he reaches down, look at the text, I have grasped his right hand. Isn't that amazing? God, what's God saying? Your power is my power. You have no power unless I give it to you. And we know from an ancient historian that Cyrus who worshipped Marduk, by the way, not Yahweh. We know that he, at his coronation, when he took over the Persian throne, he had part of his coronation that was a symbolic gesture of him reaching out for Marduk's hand. Not Marduk reaching for his, him reaching for Marduk's hand. So God's using this ancient Near Eastern symbolism that these nations would understand, and he's saying, I'm the sovereign one. I reach and grab his hand, which means I am empowering him. And what am I empowering him to do? Look at your text in the third line of verse 1. To subdue nations before him, and then there's a description, we're, we're, we're in this parallelism here, and to loose the belts of kings. Now that, to, that is to be ungirded right? To loose the belts is to be ungirded. So if you're a warrior and you're ungirded, you are not ready for war because you'll trip. <laughs> you're not girded up. All of your garments are not girded up so you can move around and wield your sword and your shield. You're ungirded. And so the people that he, the, the kingdoms he's going to overtake are even pictures being not even ready for him. It fits the picture of how Babylon was overtaken, doesn't it? And to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. So the gates of the city, when a warrior would approach, would they leave them open? 
No, they would close them. That was their fortification. They'd man the walls with their weapons and close the gates. And God says, I am empowering you where you'll be able to walk in through the gates. Because this is Yahweh carrying out his will, not Cyrus. Cyrus may think he does. Now, Josephus tells us that Josephus can sometimes be trusted and sometimes not be trusted, but that ancient historian, Josephus, tells us that Cyrus read this prophecy and was glad and wanted to carry this out. We don't know if that actually happened or not, but you know Cyrus is thinking about his power, and God is telling him if he would just read this, it is Yahweh's power, that he is the one in control. Now, look as things change. The voice changes in in verse 2. I will go before you. Well, just look at the eyes. I, I will, and I level, and I will break, and I will cut, and I will give, and, and I will give, and, that, and for reasons. And then again, I call you, verse four, verse five, I am, I equip, verse six, I am, verse seven, I form, I make, I am. You think God has something to say about himself? See, when we see those repetition, the repetition of words, we need to understand God is telling what's going to happen, but he's also telling his power so that there is no doubt that what? What he says will come to pass. So verse two, I will go before you and level the exalted places. Now we've seen that language already several times, right? Both representing proud people being brought low, the exalted ones brought low, and also in chapter 40 that started this whole section about the high places being knocked down low so that the the gospel could go forth. And that vision is what's here as well, whether it's the arrogance of people or whether it's just ways to say that God is going before him to prepare what's happening in front of him. He also says, verse 2, I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. Okay, so whatever defenses are up against you, I will take care of that. And that's really um, amazing since around Babylon were a hundred bronze gates. A hundred bronze gates. And God makes the promise that he will break in pieces the doors of bronze. Very fitting for what's about to happen in Babylon. Remember, 150 years in the future before Babylon is even a power, before Cyrus is even born. Verse 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes of secret places. What's he talking about there? Is this, a, is this an evil thing? No, this is just saying, listen, the treasures are, pl- are kept in places that are not seen by people. They're kept in safe storehouses, and I will give you all the wealth. I'll give you the hordes of wealth. Now, we're going to see in just a minute when we get to, to this, the decree that Cyrus issues, we're going to see that as a result of that, Cyrus sends back all the things that Nebuchadnezzar stole out of the temple. So I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, but there's a reason for this, the middle of verse 3 that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who called you by name. Who call you by name. So this is, I'm giving you all these things, Cyrus, speaking directly to him, that you will know that it's me who did this. Now if you or I are reading this, and we should be reading it this way, when God sends us out to do something, and he sends us out with his power, oh, I don't know, maybe to preach the gospel to all the nations, when he sends us out to do something, I don't know, maybe like be obedient to his commands and pursue holiness, he's equipping us with his power, and he is the one who is doing that in and through us. 
We should not be getting big and cocky about ourselves in any of this. And he's warning Cyrus, I called you by name. I've empowered you. I'm going to prepare the way for you to do what I intend to be done. I may use you, but I get the glory. But look at verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. Again, we see the old name and the new name. The old Israel, the new Israel. I call you by name. I call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. So God, doing all the things he just said he would do so that Cyrus would know that it was God who called him by name and he does all of that for the sake of his servant, for the sake of Jacob, for the sake of those who are in captivity so that they know, fear not of Cyrus. Cyrus comes to do my bidding and I've raised him up. Why? It's right there in the text. For the sake of my servant Jacob, for your sake, I've raised him up. Now, that's not the ultimate glory, but that is the ultimate purpose in human terms. Cyrus is coming to send you guys back into your homeland, and I'm doing it for your sake. And then he tells us that Cyrus doesn't know him. He said, I've called you by your name, but you do not know me. This is a good place for us to look at Ezra chapter 1. Turn to Ezra chapter 1. Keep your finger in Isaiah. The end of Second Chronicles 36, which is it's either on the page before or the facing page of your Ezra chapter 1, we see this proclamation of Cyrus, but we see it in more detail. All those details are repeated in Ezra 1 and more. Ezra 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, this is the proclamation, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, we might think, okay, well, he's recognized that God is the one who's done this, but he probably gave proclamations to every other nation. See, this is what Cyrus did. He was benevolent, and he let nations go back to their homeland. He did not keep them trapped, and so this is probably the way all of them started, that who, whatever God they served, he said that that God told him to let, send them home, and he's obeying them to win their favor as he sends them home. But nonetheless, we know this to be true because Jeremiah and Isaiah have told us this. Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Now that tells us right there that it's not Cyrus's God, right? He doesn't say, may our God be with us. May my God be with you. It's if you're of him, may his God. If you're one of those people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. He's not in Babylon. He's not in any of the other places. He's in Jerusalem. 
This is that ancient way of looking that a God is a representative of their own kingdom only. And Yahweh is, this whole section, Yahweh is opening up everyone's mind that he's the God, he is the God who rules the universe, not just his people. Verse four. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place and the silver and gold with goods and with beasts besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So that's the decree that sets them free and sends them back. We can read Ezra and Nehemiah to find out all those details. Verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of Yahweh that is in Jerusalem. So God not only stirs up Cyrus, he stirs up the faithful to go back and do his work. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of Yahweh that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of, well, I'm not going to read all the rest of this of what they were, but this is what Cyrus decreed, and this is what he did. So God raised him up to do this, to start the revolution, to start the remnant coming home. Now he's doing this because he is faithful to his covenant, is he not? Because there is a Messiah that needs to come from Judah. He's not going to let them languish. He's not going to leave them without help. He's not going to leave them without his love, without his support. Back in Isaiah 45, another I am no other Verse 5, I am Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. Speaking of Cyrus. Now that's interesting. This word for equip is to gird. The kings he's going to overtake are going to be ungirded. But Cyrus will be girded. He will be ready for the battle. Why? Because God reached down and gave him the strength. That people may know Listen, here's where the turn. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. So again, we have this phrase, God reminding them, no one else can do this but me. I am the only God. All other gods are false God. And he has expanded from his people to the world. This prepares us for the fourth and especially the fifth section that we'll look at next week where all the world, all the ends of the earth are said to come to Yahweh and bow their knee to him and confess that he is Lord. So this is the entry into that. This is what's preparing us for verses 22 and 23, especially of chapter 45 that we'll look at next week. So I'm doing this, Cyrus, so that everybody from the rising of the sun to the setting to the west that, there is, that will know that there is none beside me, there is no other. And then as if we don't need any more, as if we need more help, verse 7 says, I formed light and create darkness. I make well-being, which is literally peace, and create calamity, which is the word that can be translated evil. I am Yahweh who does all these things. So what is he saying here? He's saying, anything that happens on the face of the earth, I'm in charge of. Light, darkness, I created them. Good things, bad things, calamity, I am the one responsible for them. Why? To carry out my purpose. This doesn't make God the author of evil. This makes God the sovereign of the universe who does as he pleases. 
And this is what is laid before us. And as if we don't need anything else, this is one of those merisms stating the, the ends of an idea to include everything in the middle. So everything on the face of the earth is mine. And we're almost ready to say, oh, if you want to let raise up little old Cyrus, then go ahead and do it. You can control everything else. You are the sovereign one. You are the one in charge of everything, whether it's light or darkness, whether it's calamity or peace. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, this chapter is full of things that draw our mind to God for worship. But God is doing it because he knows his people. He's doing it because he knows they need reminded of who he is because their minds are already working in their measliness. Their minds are already working in ways that will diminish him. And so he's giving them the grace to say, do not forget these things about me. And he even brings in creation language to tell what he's going to do. Look at verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, Yahweh, have created it. So what he's telling us in this wonderfully picturesque language, using the earth as the earth will open up and take a seed and bring forth fruit, this is what God is doing. He's bringing forth righteousness and salvation to the world, not just his people. He's releasing his people so it happens through his people as he's always promised. Now this idea of righteousness that comes up more than once in our text reminds us of God's covenant faithfulness. God is being faithful to the covenant he made with his people that he would redeem them. And the people are unfaithful. That's why they're in Babylon in captivity. But God has made a covenant with them to say he would be the one to redeem them and he promised that the Messiah, the seed of Abraham, would come from them. So it's his own righteousness that is flowing down from the heavens like rain in a thunderstorm. But his people, there are at least some among his people who want to complain. Look at verse 9. You see woe, woe that begins verse 9 and 10. This is, this is strong language. If you're listening to all of this about my character and what I say I'm going to do and you're still going to strive with me, you're still going to question me, woe to you. You are in serious danger and serious trouble. Verse 9, woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Or maybe your work has no quality to it? So he's saying, woe to you. He's reminding them, I created you, I formed you, and if I can form you, then you're the same thing as if I took a, a piece of clay and formed a piece of, of pottery out of it. And what right does the potter have to answer back? Well, that's ludicrous. A potter wouldn't even have a voice, or a pot would not have a voice to answer back to the potter, would they? Let alone have anything to say, let alone have any right to do that. And so the people who would, look, note the words there in verse 9, who strive with him. They fight with him about this. Some among his people are fighting with him about the fact that he's raising up a pagan king to deliver them. You talk about looking a gift toward the horse in the mouth. This is the God who created them, and he's saying, you have no right to do this. And this is the verse that's quoted in, in Romans chapter 9, that beloved and hated chapter in Romans, it starts out 9, 10, and 11, where Paul makes the case that God has not forsaken his people, even though with the, 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 you can look around and see many Jews of Paul's day rejecting Christ. 
he makes the case that God has not forsaken him because this is what God intended. He uses himself as an example. I came to Christ. He's not forsaken me. And then he goes through making the argument that God has the right to do what he wants in the way that he wants to do it. And then he brings up three major arguments that he thinks his, his people will have. And one of them is based on the fact that someone would disagree with the fact that Jacob he loved and Esau he hated, which is clearly stated in Scripture, clearly demonstrated in Scripture, and he uses this verse to answer the objection. Who are you, Clay, to talk back to your maker? So it has the same idea here. You have no right. How dare you? I would say it's almost sarcastic, but the sarcasm comes in the next because there is no right. Now, this little word that the ESV translates handles, it's literally hands. And I don't know whether it's a pot without handles, so it's kind of useless. I, I think it might be, as some commentators and some of your translations might have, that it's useless because either the creator has no hands or there is no utility to it. It's because the creator has no hands, there's no usefulness to the pot. One commentator even said it's using hands in the same way that we use the words handy today. If you're handy at something, you're gifted at it. And this is a way of saying, talking back to the one who made you and say, you don't have any talent? I, I'm, I, don't, I don't like what you're doing. And fighting against God when he does what he wants. But he's not finished. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 starts the third, thus saith the Lord, so we've seen that Cyrus is my shepherd who will fulfill my purposes. Cyrus is my anointed whom I will empower, so don't fight with me. Here we see Cyrus is my choice, so don't question me. Thus says Yahweh, verse 11, the Holy One of Israel, that's that wonderful name that we've seen over and over in Isaiah that, that's focusing on the overarching holiness of Yahweh, and the one who formed him, so this Holy One of Israel formed Israel. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? Look back at verse 10. Woe to him who says to a father, who are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? He's using these examples to say, I am the creator, and you talking back to me is as silly as verse 10, uh, the, the, the son who's talking back to the father, what are you begetting? What right do you have to do this? Well, listen, the, 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 the child is just begotten, right? There, there's nothing they have to say about that. Or they're the woman with what are you in labor? What right do you have to do this? Why did you create this? Why did you do this? Or then he gets the, the, the nub of the issue when he says, ask me of things to come. That's, that's basically saying, how dare you? Go ahead it. Ask me about things to come because we have no right to do that. How dare you ask me and then will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? Over and over and over we're being shown that there is no reason for us to strive against or question God for what he does. How he does it no matter where we fall into things. Uh, I want to return to the question that we started with today. Um, are you... Does, is God's sovereignty, is, is that lip service for you or life service? We have seen verse after verse after verse to remind us of the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the power of God. We have the uh, ability to look back and say that Cyrus came just like God said he would come. 
And we've seen so many other ways. We've seen so many other ways that in the scriptures that God does what he pleases and he carries out what he promises to do. And yet when we live our lives, are we giving lip service to that or life service to that? And let me show you what I mean. When we, after we had gone to seminary, Paige and I and our family, and we had served a church in Indiana, and we came out and we were back in Illinois, and I didn't have a ministry. I wasn't involved in a church. We had gone back to serve her family. I was working for her father as a, for Paige's dad, uh, graciously gave me a job as a pharmacy tech in his pharmacy. And I asked the question many times, why would God take me to seminary and then not have me in ministry? Do you hear the question? Why would God, why would he do that? Now, God can handle me asking that question, right? And I can ask that question in order to say, I really need to discern his will because this is what he's done. I can ask that with great motives, but I was questioning, why would God do that? And I came to the conclusion, he wouldn't do that, so he must still have ministry for me in the future. So I questioned God, and then I filled in the blank and answered for God as if I was God. And I didn't mean to be disrespectful. I didn't mean to bring, um, to, to stand before God and question him, but I was doing that. I was questioning him, and then I filled into the blank as if he had spoken when he had not. You see, one of the things he taught me in that time is as a pharmacy tech, there were people in front of me all the time getting their pills filled. And some people would come in, and the only thing they knew is they were supposed to take two greens, one red, and a blue. And then when we changed our generic drug because it was cheaper in the next bottle and their blue pill became a red pill. Do you know how confusing that can be for someone who's trying to put all their pills together? Those people stood right on the other side of the counter from me who ordered the change in the drugs. That was my job. And then I'd give them their meds and I did not see them as ministry. Can you believe that? God had to show me That is ministry. If you can't serve them in a pharmacy, he didn't say these things to me, but this was my conviction. This is what I confessed to him. I'm not serving them in a pharmacy. How can I serve you in your church? God did that because he's sovereign and I had things to learn. And then he sent us back into ministry in a church. There are other ways that people can do this. We, I, there's a student in our seminary who he and his wife lost a child. I don't remember how, how, when he Kate was four, five, six. I think she was six years old. Suddenly lost a child. They had multiple children, but they lost their youngest. Every time I've spoken to him and every time I see him, he is trumpeting the divine, sovereign, loving hand of God in taking their child from them in this life. Am I saying they don't have times in the darkness where they cry and and they wonder why this happened? I'm not saying they're perfect in this, but they have used this as a platform to point other people to the sovereign hand of God that he loves us and he knows what he's doing. And even when it's the death of my child, he's good and I trust him and he's doing his will as he pleases. Those are two opposite extremes. Now, I know there are lost people who would look at God and curse at him like Snoopy cursing at the Red Baron on top of his doghouse. We're not talking about those. He's speaking in Isaiah to his own people. So where is it that we tend to do that? Where is it that we are walking through God's, the, what God has sovereignly ordained for us and we're angry? 
We may not question God, but we're angry. Now, why would, be, why would we be angry? Because we don't like what he's done, right? Or maybe we're fearful. Why would we be fearful? Because we don't trust him, that he's in charge of whatever we're afraid of. And all the times in scripture, he says, fear not. What if we're anxious? Well, we're not anxious because that's the way we are. We're anxious because we're not trusting in his sovereign hand. I'm not saying it's easy, but he's revealed himself as a God who is trustworthy, who is working his will according to his good pleasure. So why would we ever be fearful or or controlling? You ever been that way? You just take control of the situation, say, I can fix this. You may not be talking to God, but what are you saying about his sovereign control? I need to fix what you've done, God. Give me a minute, I'll be right back. And what usually happens when we try to fix it in a different way than he wants? We're in more of a mess. Are we giving lip service to the sovereignty of God or are we giving life service? That when he gives us an opportunity to walk forward glorifying him, trusting him in the most difficult situations, I'm not saying it's easy to lose a child. I'm not saying it's easy to lose your job. I'm not saying it's easy to deal with, with, with relationship issues and people who hate you and, and family issues. And I'm not saying any of that is easy. But if God is sovereign, has he ordained it for your good and his glory? And the answer is yes, always, unequivocally. And so this should never be us. So we may not be talking back like they did about Cyrus, but we can easily take things into our control and have our own view of things guide us instead of trusting in the sovereign God. Now, how do we do that? We do that because God has sent his son. See, they didn't think his son was the right choice either, did they? When God raised up Jesus as the Messiah and sent him, the Jewish people who were not ready to receive him fought against it. Well, that's not what a Messiah should look like. A Messiah should come in riding on a, on a white horse and free us from Roman tyranny, not a babe in a manger dying on a cross. And that's the same thing today. We preach the gospel to people. They say, you've got to be kidding me. You're pointing me to a man who was born and died on a cross and you say, he, that's the answer to all my problems and I should trust in him and that will give me eternal life? The world looks at what God has done and calls it silly, calls it foolishness. But when we preach the gospel, we're preaching life and guess what? God has already knocked down the high places. He's already prepared the way for his gospel. We learned this in Isaiah 40. So that when we preach, when, we, when that word gets to people who God has softened their hearts and are drawing unto himself, guess what happens? They do what God intends. They respond to the word. When you and I are struggling with sin in our life and we think it's going to overcome us, we know that God has overcome that. We know that he's giving us the power to fight against that and trusting in Christ and employing the gospel in our life is what spares us from going down that road of sin. God has promised that. So we remember this all the time. Why? Because God sent his son who lived and died, rose again, and is seated at the right hand of the father. Guess what? Just as God said would happen. That's what it says in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four, right? These men all gathered around to do this, but it was according to your predetermined plan. This was your good pleasure to have your son come in the flesh and die on a cross. And we know that. And we're going to meet that Savior in Isaiah 49 and 50 and 51 and 52 and 53 as clearly as we will ever see him in the New Testament. So why do we have a right? 
We'll cover it over, act as if it hasn't happened, but we are the clay barking at the potter when we do that. Well, look at our last two verses. They're all things that we know in a summary. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred up in I have stirred him up, that is Cyrus, in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Remember, it wasn't price or reward. Nobody paid him anything. In fact, he set it up where their mission would be funded. And they had all the vessels of the temple returned to them. Later on in Isaiah 52.3, we'll learn, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. This is all the sovereign hand of God, the sovereign work of our Lord. So can we challenge each other? When life closes in on us, can we remind each other that we are giving life service to the God who is sovereign and not just lip service? Can we remind each other of the teaching of Scripture? Can we point each other to the glory of God and the love of Christ and the power of the gospel employed in our own lives? The power of the resurrection directed toward us, as Paul said, Can we remind each other of that? One way we do it is right with what we're about to do, isn't it? We come to the Lord's table to remember that Jesus came, lived, and died, and rose again. We look back at his sacrifice to remind us the price has been paid. We've been bought with that price. We are now his, called to righteousness and holiness, and equipped because he reached to grab our hand. We didn't reach to grab his. And he's holding on to us. We're not holding on to him. We're reminding ourselves of the work of Christ, but we're also looking forward to the time that he comes again and sets everything completely right and brings us into the new heavens and new earth and striving ceases. There is no more striving. There is no more sin to fight. We are face to face with our Savior. And when we celebrate, we do this in community. We come together with hearts and minds locked together so that we are remembering the work of Christ and Christ coming again and to be feeding on those truths so that we give life service instead of lip service to our sovereign God. Take a moment and prepare your hearts to do just that.